Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to some of you. We have a large group with us today and you're all very welcome. I'm Karen Brooks. I'm the director of the CGIAR research program on policies, institutions, and markets. And I'm very happy to welcome you to the second in our webinar series for 2018. Our topic today is Women in Agriculture, Four Myths. And this work is undertaken by PIM as part of our flagship on gender. It's a cross-cutting flagship on gender research. We have three speakers today, and I'm very pleased that we have two of them with us in the, in the room today and one joining um, online for the question and answer session. We have Cheryl Doss with us. Cheryl is a development economist whose research focuses on issues related to assets, agriculture, and gender, and does a lot of work on Africa south of the Sahara. She's a senior departmental lecturer in development economics at the Oxford Department of International Development at the University of Oxford. And we're very fortunate that she works with us in PIM. She's the leader of our flagship six on gender. Welcome, Cheryl. Thanks for joining. Thank you. We also have Agnes Quisenbing, who is a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI. Agnes co-leads a research program that examines how closing the gap between men's and women's ownership and control of assets leads to better development outcomes. She focuses on poverty, gender, property rights, and economic mobility. Thank you, Agnes, for joining. You're not always based in Washington, so we're always <clears throat> pleased to see you here. Now, online, we have Ruth Meinzendick. Ruth is a senior research fellow, again, at IFPRI. She's, uh, she works on um, research areas related to how institutions and policies affect management of natural resources, especially land and water. She also does a lot of work on gender issues in agriculture, and particularly on gender differences in control of assets. She does a lot of work on poverty. Now, those of you who have joined us for earlier webinars know how we manage this. Um, I'll very quickly turn the program over to Agnes, Cheryl, and Ruth, and they will do a presentation that will last around 30 minutes. And during that period, we invite you, the listeners, to send in questions via the chat option and the question windows on the right-hand side of your screen. Now, Yevgenia Anisimova, our senior communication specialist, and I will be collating the questions. We'll group them, and we will refer them and present them to the questioners. We do this in the interest of time management because we're able to get more questions in that way. So please do as, uh, send in your questions through the chat function um, as the presentation um, moves forward. So, and we are recording the webinar, and we'll make it available on our website uh, shortly after the live event. So feel free to replay it and learn from it again. So with that, I hand over to our presenters. And Cheryl and Agnes, you can decide who goes first. Um, it looks like it's Cheryl. Yes. So over <laughs> to you, Cheryl. Great. Thank you very much. So today what we're going to talk about is four myths about gender and agriculture. Um, and these myths are first, that women produce 60 to 80% of the food. Um, second, that women own 2% of the land. Third, that 70% of the world's poor are women. And fourth, that women are intrinsically better stewards of the environment. These are all myths that you would have seen, some of them on on posters, on headlines, on, um, on blogs, and on papers, um, and that you've presumably heard over and over again. 
One of the things about myths, and one of the reasons that they really stick around is because they embody some truth. So there is a, an important element of truth in all four of these myths. But most, the three that are about data are not factually correct. Um, they're not actually representing any kind of statistical evidence. Um, all of them are archetypes that present women either as victims or saviors. And so we lose some of the nuance when we start talking about women in these kinds of ways. As I mentioned, they're not based on any empirical evidence. Um, they also treat women as a monolithic group so that there is simply a group of women and men and not look, don't look at any of the nuances within them. They ignore the roles of men, women, and institutions, and so just focusing on women. And part of what that does is really provides a simplistic or a misleading base to, for creating policies and programs. So that the policies and programs that come out of these may be um, inappropriate, and it's also not, not possible to monitor them if we start out with data that's not correct. So that we really need to go beyond the myths to be able to get appropriate data um, to be able to create policies to, to benefit women. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about the first two and then turn it over to Agnes for the second two. The first of which is that women produce 60 to 80 percent of the world's food. Um, this one has been around for quite a while. We think that it first came out um, and, and was the, 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 the citation that everybody goes back to is from 1997 uh, to the FAO, where they said that women produce 60 to 80 percent of the food in most developing countries and are responsible for half the world's food production. There's no way that they could have based that on any kind of nationally representative data because the wasn't anything that was possible at that point in terms of how you would how you would think about that or measure it, but it was based on their understanding and their sense that women are very involved in food production. And so that's again the element of truth within it. The, the challenges is when you start to think about it, what does it mean for women to be pr producing food? How would we measure women's contribution to food production? as opposed to men's contribution to food production. How do we take the food that's being produced and allocate it either to that women produced it or that men produced it? Other challenge with this is it's meant to really talk about how important women are as food producers and thus, thus that we need to really support women um, in this activity. But if women are already producing 60 to 80% of the food, we know that they're doing it, they're providing only 43% of the labor, and we also know that they have less access to land, less access to credit and cash, extension to markets. Then maybe instead of focusing, this would suggest that instead of focusing on figuring out how to help them, we ought to be learning from them to figure out why, how they're such miracle workers. Um, so it would lead us in a funny policy direction if we start taking this one seriously. One of the challenges is that we know that women's agricultural labor is undercounted. Um, the, the best data that we have is the data on the 
percentage of the agricultural labor force that's women. And in 2011, the SOFA reported that globally 42% of the agricultural labor force is women. It's less than 50% in Sub-Saharan Africa, even still. And in Latin America and the Caribbean, it's 16%. So we've got women pr providing less of the agricultural labor than men. Um, so again, hard to imagine how it could be the case that they're producing most of the food when they're a very substantial part of the agricultural labor force, but certainly not the vast majority of it. Now, these numbers may be a bit undercounted. Um, we know that um, we know that women, when you ask women what their primary occupation is, um, many women who are living and working on smallholder farms, instead of saying that they're farmers or agricultural laborers, will say that they're housewives, and even though they're contributing substantially. So the numbers may be estimated, and that women's agricultural contributions are often not counted at all. We don't see those as contributions to agriculture. Thinking about how we conceptualize and measure women's contribution, um, if we really wanted to substantiate this claim, again, we need to allocate the food that's produced and say that men produce this and women produce this food. That would be really easy if the way the world worked was that women owned plots of land and men owned a plots of land. And on their own plots of land, they managed it, provided the labor, they controlled the revenue then we could say that women produced all the food on that plot and men produced all the food on a different plot. But most household plots have both men and women contributing labor to them. If we just thought about the time and how much time do women contribute, we also have to think about what do we mean by agricultural labor? Is it only the work in their own fields? Does it include work on homestead gardens, um, which isn't always thought of as agriculture, um, caring for the livestock, fetching fodder, milking the animals, for example? What about the post-harvest post processing? Is that part of agricultural labor? And then we could even think as far as if we're actually thinking about production of food, what about all of the work getting the food onto the table? Um, how do we think about that. Is that agricultural labor? It's not usually considered it, but it might be, we might want to think about that as part of producing food. So whose production? Even if we have good data on the labor contributions of men and women, so we don't, but even if we did, <laughs> and we really knew exactly what each person did, how would we allocate it um, to food production? So if we had a, a farm where the man plowed, the woman weeded, together they harvested and she sold what took the food to market, how on earth would we decide who produced that food, right? What about a situation in which women worked as paid agricultural labor on farms? They're doing all of the paid agricultural labor, but men are the managers. Who, who would we say produces that food? Um, and we could even, if we're thinking again about food, if a man grows crops on his plots and harvests them, he does the agricultural labor. His wife, um, she processes everything. She gathers the firewood. She cooks the meal and cleans up afterward. 
Is she involved in producing the food? So we don't have clear ideas, I think, on what we would actually mean by this um, and how we would measure it. Probably more important, though, than to figure out how we would measure this, to what we want to be doing and kind of what the myth is getting at is that we need to recognize women's contributions and their constraints to the livelihoods. Again, if we knew how much food was produced by woman, women, would that actually change our policy? We want, to, we want to strengthen women's involvement, give them access to resources. The actual amount that they produce at the end is just, probably isn't what's driving what we need to be doing in policy. We need to recognize that even when their roles are differentiated, men and women work together. Um, they may have different roles and need different kinds of programs and policies to help improve household production. So that's the first myth. <clears throat> the second one, which is related, is that women own one to two percent of the land. And we see this one over and over again um, in various forms. Sometimes it's one percent, sometimes it's two percent. Um, and the truth is that women um, have own less land and have less access to land. They're more tenure insecure than men are. Um, so there's certainly an element of truth that this myth is getting at. Um, but it would be really useful to have good data on how much land women actually own. To be able to do that, we have to think about what we mean by ownership, what land we're counting. Um, and start to collect data on land ownership at the individual level. So if we think about who owns the land, usually when we think about ownership, it's only defined as people who have the legal rights to the land. Um, so does that mean we're only gonna think about land that's titled in that person's name if we're gonna measure it? Much of the land in the world is not titled. Um, it's still under customary tenure. Um, so are we thinking about only land that's titled or has registration or certifi certification documents? Um, how do we think about land that's been inherited, um, but that the name on the documents are still the person who is now dead? Um, and how do we think about customary tenure where people may have very strong, very secure tenure, but it's not legally owned. So thinking about, I mean, that's one challenge to thinking about what do we mean by women's ownership of land. We also have to think about which land. And so the, the, the myth, the way the myth gets framed, it's often about of the world's land. Do we mean all land? Do we mean all urban land and all uncultivatable land? Are we including the Sahara <laughs> in the share of land owned by women? Um, are we including land that's publicly owned or commons land? Or are we just looking at land that is owned individually, um, either solely or jointly by individual people? So not corporate ownership, but land that's owned by households. We do now have a bit of data on this. This is using the LSMS ISA data from Uganda. And what we see is that about 3% of the land that is reported as owned or farmed by households, um, so again, not including government land in particular, 
about 3% of it is owned by women where they have documents, and about 13% is owned by women where they say that they own it, but they don't have their name on a document. And then there's also 32% of it that's owned jointly by men and women without documents, and another 10% where it's actually documented in the names of men and women. If we look more broadly across the other five countries in Africa where we have good data, um, we certainly see that women own less land than men, um, but in almost all cases, it's more than one to produce more than one to two percent of the land that is owned by households. So it's certainly not true that women own one to two percent of the world's land, particularly if we think that implies that men own 98 to 99 percent. Um, women own a much smaller fraction of land than do men, and we have to really think about what land we're talking about and what ownership means. What we do need to do is we need to be able to document women's land ownership in order to be able to monitor the, the impact of programs and policies. So we need better data on land ownership. We also know that strengthening women's land rights is not enough. Women also need to be aware of their land rights and be able to enforce them. And there's a number of kind of programs that work on this, uh, particularly community-based legal aid programs that fill some of the gender gap in not only in land rights, but in the knowledge about land rights. And I'm going to turn it over to Agnes for the next two. Thank you, Cheryl. So um, I'm going to be talking about the next two of the four myths. And I'm sure everybody who is tuned into this webinar today has heard this extremely durable myth that 70% of the world's poor are women. Um, we've seen this everywhere, including some vague UN reports. So if UN reports are them, perhaps they're correct. Well, not necessarily. So there is, of course, a kernel of truth underlying all these myths. And one of them is that women do face a lot of ex economic exclusion, especially those who are single heads of households. And even within households that they share with men, they have less access to resources. The problem with this assertion is that when we talk about 70% of the world's poor, we're talking about the world's poor people. But the data are at the household level. Um, this assertion is demographically impossible, implausible, and it simply ignores the sharing of resources within the household. So, for example, because poverty data is collected at the household level, the only household level comparisons that you can actually make is the differences in poverty rates between male and female-headed households. But doesn't, this doesn't give you an individual measure of poverty. You can analyze the percentage of those who live in poor households who are women, but if you really wanted to know the share of women who are poor, you would need to have individual-level poverty data and need to define how we, what we consider poverty, because poverty is actually a multidimensional concept. Most of these um, assertions about the percentage of women who are poor is based on income-based poverty measures. Now, if we look at the demographics of it, women are defined as adult females. But then how about children who are female? So would that mean that men and children are, are only 30% of the world's poor? The main explanation given is that Poor female-headed households may contain more female and men, male members. The problem with this assertion, though, is that 
worldwide, female-headed households actually account for a much smaller proportion of the population than male-headed households. Um, female-headed households also tend to have fewer members. And in terms of the absolute numbers, there are a lot more women living in male-headed households than there are women living in female-headed households. So if you really wanted to look at who poor women are, it makes sense to look inside male-headed households. There are just more of them. Um, this statement also ignores the sharing of resources within households. And although the amount or degree of sharing is different, um, for, for in some households, like the ones on the right, men have most of the resources, women have a small proportion of the resources, and there's overlap of resources with joint resources. We don't really have these measures of poverty at the, indivi in, at the individual level. We do have some measures of consumption, we have some measures of assets, but we don't have incomes or the total bundle of resources. So we really can't, um, there's no data on which this statement is based. So what are the implications of this myth? If we focus only on women as disproportionately poor and focus only on female-headed households as vulnerable, this can distort the policies that we're going to implement. For one, women are not homogeneous. They're certainly wealthy women as well as poor women. And female-headed households are not all the same. Female-headed households who receive remittances can be much, much better off than female-headed households who don't. And so what this means is that we need to be able to use both monetary and non-monetary measures to identify the poor. And this creates the need to measure income, expenditure, and assets at the individual and not just the household. Okay, our last myth is that women are better stewards of the environment. Again, a very popular one. And the kernel of truth underlying this myth is that there are traditional roles that women have gathering firewood, collecting water, and managing agriculture. Because of these roles, they are affected by resource depletion and climate change, and proponents of the myth argue that they're more affected than men are, and therefore have incentives to conserve resources. Again, this assertion has problems. First, it ignores other issues that influence conservation, and the evidence is quite mixed. So Ruth Meinson, Dick Yarkovaric, and I wrote an article um, which reviews a lot of this evidence. And it's not there. And in this and in, in this review, um, we look at other factors that affect conservation. One is that women are less likely to have secure tenure, so they have weaker incentives to practice conservation agriculture. Women have less access to other complementary resources, such as information, cash credit, and markets. And therefore, we would effect, expect women to be less likely to adopt conservation agriculture and environmentally friendly technologies. So in this review that Ruth, Kiara, and I wrote, um, we looked at a lot of evidence, um, both from qualitative and, and quantitative studies, and what we found, for example, there was a positive correlation between the proportion of women on executive committees of foreign forest user groups and improved forest governance and resource sustainability in India. However, we also found that female-dominated groups were less likely to adopt new technologies and resource monitoring activities associated with improved sustainability 
in Kenya, in Kenya, Uganda, Mexico, and Bolivia. And thirdly, um, in Indonesia, and this is in fact one of my study sites in Sumatra, um, women were more likely to accept hypothetical offers of conversion of forests to oil palm and monoculture rubber plantations, while men expressed stronger conservation beliefs. And this has to do a lot to do with the underlying matrilineal culture where women were really doing rice paddies where men were doing more agroforestry. And so men were set up to, to have a stronger, I mean, they, their underlying conditions were such that they would be more in, interested in conservation. So if you look at all the evidence, there is such a lot of difference in local conditions and, lo and, and local cultures. So it's very difficult to make that kind of um, generalization that women are intrinsically better stewards of the environment. So women do face constraints in participating in natural resource governance like water user associations. And so the, the lesson is that we should neither ignore women entirely nor expect them to be independent drivers for conservation. And I think since this is the last myth, it's worth returning to some of the themes that Cheryl brought up that women and men belong to households. They do a lot of activities jointly. They have some own activities and some joint activities. They pull some resources, they have some resources which they keep individually. And so to be able to work within the resource conservation sector, you need to work with both men and women and to understand better the gender roles and dynamics between them. These myths are really quite dangerous to our work. Um, they undercut our work, but they're very hard to get rid of, partly because they contain a kernel of truth, Better data are currently not available. And in these days of fake news, we're not immune. Killer facts are more popular than nuanced pictures. So why do we want to get rid of these myths? They destroy our credibility. They demonize men and victimize women. It makes us invisible. It makes the cross-sectional nuance invisible and makes us not pay attention to important drivers of change. Because we're not measuring the right thing, we, we are unable to measure changes over time. And finally, it misses out on opportunities to build on women's agency. So in many cases, we can collect better data to replace these myths and to make projects and governments accountable for the policies that they live, deliver. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ruth, and thank you, Agnes. Um, uh, thank you, Cheryl, and thank you, Agnes. Before we turn over to some questions that came in. Let me um, ask Ruth if you want to come in at this point and give us any quick um, additional observations on the myths, Ruth. Um, no, I think uh, Agnes and Cheryl have covered it very nicely, and I'm looking forward to um, uh, hearing the reaction of the audience about this. Okay, excellent. Well, we have we do have a large group of people who have tuned in, and we have some questions that have already come in. One of them actually is exactly the question that I had first on my mind, and so I'm going to turn to that one. Um, and it, first of all, thanks you for um, you know, really interesting uh, work, uh, well presented, and for drawing our attention to these myths as kind of foundational elements of the way we think about the development process and how maybe we should rethink some of that. But I think the, the question is one that kind of asks us to take it further. Um, 
we recognize uh, in a world of evidence-based policy and commitment to evidence that we should have um, good evidence in what, what we're doing. On the other hand, um, you've also agreed that the myths are based on a kind of kernel of truth, which has some evidence um, that's supporting that kernel. Um, can you give us any examples of where designing policies or interventions um, based on the myths actually led us astray? Did we do something wrong? Is there some evidence that using these myths to motivate action uh, leads us to do the wrong thing? Can you think of any examples? I can think of one from, I can think of one um, which is more related to um, another of our programs, which is the orange sweet potato, um, which was developed by Harvest Plus. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, um, the way that the orange sweet potato was disseminated was that, um, okay, it's disseminated to farmers groups, a lot of whom are women, but the nutrition advice was really given only to women whereas the agriculture advice is given to both women and men, but in any case, the men were sort of kept out of the nutrition loop. And we found out that actually, um, if you look at the adoption of orange sweet potato, it is, the adoption is highest on jointly managed plots where women are prime decision makers. So we are in, in some sense missing out on involving men in possibly increasing the adoption of orange sweet potato by not giving them nutrition advice as well. I mean, advice that, for example, that, hey, everybody in the household will benefit if we have more vitamin A that's available and that you're growing at loss. And so we're seeing a lot of missed opportunities to involve men in, in nutrition-sensitive um, agriculture. We're also seeing a lot of missed opportunities to involve women in, for example, climate conservation or adoption of climate smart agriculture practices because agriculture's extension systems typically only target men. And um, some of the evidence on adoption of CSA practices, for example, show that although women are less likely to be aware of these practices, um, when they're aware, their adoption rates are equal to and can sometimes even surpass men. So there are lots of missed opportunities here. That's interesting, Agnes, because I think you, um, I mean, you brought in the idea that maybe there's another myth circul circulating in the background, and it, that myth might be that women care about nutrition, that women are in charge of nutrition, and that we should, for example, underplay the role of men or the interest of men in nutrition. And your orange flesh sweet potato um, example suggested that um, that myth led us astray to focus only on the women and nutrition instead of bringing the men in. So I think it is, I think it is true that um, women are more involved in childcare and in pre preparing food for their children and their families but they're not necessarily the ones who make all the decisions about the allocation of the household budget to those resources. So um, if we bring men on board, women may have a better chance to command those resources or to control those resources for nutritional outcomes. And I think it's also part of your message that um, the myths actually serve a function of demonizing men. And you know, we sort of assume that 
men are not going to weigh in on the right side of development issues. Um, and that's probably um, an assumption that could lead us um, fairly far astray. Cheryl and Ruth, did you have any um, examples that you wanted to provide of how myths have perhaps led us into um, suboptimal actions in, in the development sphere? Ruth, anything? So in, in the environment arena, I don't have specific examples, but I think the overall idea that, um, that in fact, there's a book that, uh, you know, why women will save the world. The overall idea that you just target women for environmental conservation, um, would be a very big mistake because men do play such an important role in this. Um, and it puts yet one more thing on the, on the backs of women, one more responsibility, um, which I think there's another broad generalization stylized fact that probably has a lot more uh, evidence behind it that women are already um, overburdened with work between uh, domestic and, um, you know, uh, paid or agricultural labor. And so um, adding, appealing just to women for doing various kinds of conservation agriculture is not going to be as effective, and especially if you don't uh, recognize where um, where men have the authority or the necessary resources for the kinds of investment in sustainable agriculture practices that that you want. Um, so I think that the idea of of looking at the jointness and the and the relationship between men and women in environmental um, issues or in food production itself is very important. Yeah, and this is Cheryl. I think I would add in just something a little bit similar to that is that if we only target women and try to, on food production and try to focus on women producing more productively only on their own plots, we're really missing the opportunity to provide women with the information and the resources to contribute better to household production um, by having them, by pulling them in, providing them with the extension, we may also be giving them a voice in the much larger proportion of agricultural production that is done by multiple members of the household. So making sure that they've got, not only that they have extension, services and that they have the information, but that they have it in such a way that their spouses know that they now know about how to do this so that they can be more clearly involved in making some of those decisions. Okay, thanks. Um, the questions are starting to come in thick and fast now, so I'm <laughs> going to sort through them. Um, we have one um, listener from KwaZulu-Natal who reports that, well, actually, I just did some data collection and I found that women do contribute you know, a very large proportion. I can't remember whether she said 70%, but you know, women do a lot of the work. So when we have a case where the data actually confirm the myth, 
Um, how would you respond to that? You've said the myth is not confirmed or not true. So now we have um, contrary data, which says actually women do 70% of the work in this particular instance. How do you react to that? So there's, there probably are places where women do 70% of the agricultural work, particularly in places where men have migrated out and are, are not around. Um, it may be useful to think about how much of the work that they're doing. Um, I'm not, I think taking it that next extra step and saying that they're producing 70% of the food, which I don't think is what the claim was being made. Um, I'm, I'm not sure where that gets us. I think part of my concern with this myth is that we can spend a lot of time trying to figure out how much of the work women are doing or what they're producing. It's useful to know that they're really involved. And what we want to do is figure out how do we strengthen these women who are involved in agriculture so that they can be more productive. Um, so 70% of the women are, are involved in agricultural labor. Um, you know, there could be lots of different policies that we want to think about. We might want to give some of those women other opportunities so that they can earn an income doing something other than, than agriculture. We also want to make sure that those who are working in agriculture have access to the resources that they need to be productive. So would it be fair to paraphrase your, your response for our listener from KwaZulu-Natal to say, we'll go where the data tell you? I mean, in, here, that, in that situation, yes. yes, you're working with very concrete data, understand what story they're telling, how rigorous it is, and draw the conclusions from that, that will um, facilitate the you know, development, poverty reduction, opportunity agenda that's appropriate for that setting. Exactly. But I think following up on that one, Karen, and also talking to our listener from KwaZulu-Natal, it will be very dangerous to, to take that recommendation and apply it in another setting and assume that women are putting in 70% of the labor. And, right. Know. Right. Okay, excellent. We have um, a series of questions coming in saying, okay, this is really interesting research that you've done. Um, you've put a number of these myths to the test and you've found them wanting. Um, why is it that you're doing this now? And these myths have been around for such a long time. Why haven't they been questioned before? Uh, it seems like they weren't terribly strong. So why did it take this long to bring them to the test? I, I think two reasons. One is that people like these myths um, and find them very useful. So advocacy people, um, I've had people be really, really annoyed with me for challenging some of the myths because they found them useful. Um, so that would be one reason. And I think the other reason for some of them, particularly the one about land, is that the data hasn't been available. So we people made up the myth in the sense saying that they own one to two percent of the land. That was a good guess based on what people saw, but there really was no data to to take it on. Um, so that would be two reasons. And can I just come in here? Um, <clears throat> there have been, since the, I mean, for probably 20 years, there have been challenges to the women that are 70% of the poor. Um, Cheryl did uh, about uh, 2010, came out with the article challenging the, um, the women produce 70 uh, percent of the food or 60 to 80 percent of the food um, but at one point I 
I gave a presentation on this as zombie statistics. They're things that never were really alive, but you can't kill them. They keep <laughs> resurfacing. And, uh, and so we put it, these four together in one article to say, to make the case that we really need to get beyond these myths. Uh, because as, as Cheryl said, they were being, we were seeing them cropping up in all kinds of places. And so we want the word out there broadly enough that any reviewer of a peer-reviewed article that sees one of these will go in and say, no, you can't say that. Yeah. That anytime, you know, somebody takes the, the easy way out and says, oh, I need a big number to justify paying attention to gender, they use this as a crutch. We want people to go the next step and say, no, there's a lot of other evidence and issues. Use that. Don't use these bad crutches. Okay, so we have the suggestion that we pound a stake through the heart of these zombie, <laughs> zombie myths, okay. And I think that relates to one of the other questions or observations that has come in. This is from a student who says, okay, this is all very convincing, very exciting. Um, we want to know how we can structure our work so that we're not perpetuating these myths. And so that we have the data to do well-grounded research on topics relevant to gender, but without getting sucked into these myths. So I know that all three of you have done um, quite a bit of thinking about what are the priorities for new data, better data, um, better approaches to data um, that would help us um, recognize the kernel of truth, but not be limited by it and move on to more um, evidence-based research. Can you give us some thoughts about priorities for data and how we would both collect it and work with it? Okay, Cheryl was about to <laughs> jump in, so here she goes. Okay, um, I mean, I think the first one is just the, the amount of data that's being collected now that is sexist aggregated is much, much higher than it has mm -hmm. ever been. And so there is, there is much more data out there if you want to use data that's already been collected, um, right? And it, it's possible to go quite a bit beyond just looking at the sex of the household head, for example. We often have data on, on um, ownership, management, labor on particular plots of land if you're looking at agricultural agricultural production. So one piece is on the on the data side that there, there there is much more available and you can start looking at these much more nuanced kinds of issues. The other is that if you're collecting your own data for a project um, is to really think through what are the pieces that you need, um, right? kind of tossing out the myths, but thinking about what those kernels of truth are and seeing if you can collect the data in such a way that you can answer some of these questions that go beyond just the really simplistic um, questions of male versus female headed households. 
Right. And um, this is Agnes. So if I were to have a wish list, and let's say that um, you, the graduate student, are about to go into the field, I would suggest that you try to get data on individual incomes and assets. Now, sometimes it's very tedious to get. You might want to get data on sole and joint resources and decision making, especially the important resources that are related to the topic that you have in question. And as, as Cheryl mentioned, to go beyond headship. Um, it, it's incredible how many papers I get to review where the gender disaggregator is still the sex of the household head. And, and I'm like, you know, we've already gone beyond that. We're not, we're not looking at what's actually happening within households. Okay, Ruth, uh, anytime yeah. to come in, feel free. Sure, sure. No, I, first of all, um, there was a, uh, cheering going on here uh, when I heard the students saying this. This is this would be lovely. Um, for what Agnes said about collecting data on um, assets uh, under the, uh, I'll, I can put it in the chat, gaap.ifpri.info, we have a toolkit that uh, gives qualitative and quantitative methods for collecting that. Cheryl and I just did a paper recently on what really would be required to look at um, women's land rights and to get at tenure security in the kind of complex um, environments that we're looking at. Uh, so if you are collecting your own data, um, those are two resources that not only give you our wish list, but, but some recommended methods for getting at those. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Ruth. I think maybe um, the one conclusion that we could draw is that one advantage of this kind of myth-busting work is that it does draw attention to the nature of the underlying data, and it leads to changes in the way we collect the data. And I think we've already seen that um, coming out of this body of work, maybe drawing on some earlier things as well. So I think that's a sign of progress, and um, for both the younger students starting out now, and for any of us in, in the profession who want to see um, work that is more rigorously grounded in, uh, in evidence and, and facilitates uh, more imaginative, quantitative um, analysis. I think you know, using the myths to go about data collection and analysis in a different way is, is very positive. So you know, thanks to those of you who've been contributing to that. Um, we have a, a question that relates to your findings about jointness in decision making. Um, the, the listener has said it's really nice to be able to get beyond the women do this, men do that, um, and trying to compartmentalize everything, and instead recognizing the jointness in many of the activities that contribute to development. Now, if we take that seriously um, and so sort of reflect on it, how might that change how we would design interventions? I think, Agnes, you gave us one example already with regard to the orange flesh sweet potato, but there may be others where we can just sort of start you know, thinking toward how does recognizing um, household activity as joint in many instances, not all, but how would that lead us to think differently about development interventions? Any thoughts? And if any of these questions require um, more more considered responses, feel free to say, I'll think about it. 
Well, I can talk about some current um, interventions that have been designed with jointness in mind. And um, since they're still ongoing, um, we don't have the final results of the impact evaluation yet. So the, the, the ones that I'm thinking of are in Bangladesh where um, some of the treatment arms, so it's a randomized, there are two randomized control trials which are, which are going on. And some of the treatment arms involve uh, providing agricultural extension to both men and women in the household. And another treatment arm um, is looking at how gender sensitization activities, which is provided to men and community members, can help improve the outcomes in the program. So, so one, the base treatment arm in in one case, the, the one I know best, um, is an accredited program targeted to women. And then we see what happens when you put layer on top of that a behavior change communication program on nutrition, and then another program on ag extension. And finally, the gender sensitization arm, which is meant to make men within the households more aware of their wives' productive and reproductive roles and also change gender norms. So I'm very excited about this study, but I don't know the results yet. <laughs> okay. Ruth or Cheryl, any um, any thoughts about how jointness might change the way we either conduct studies or um, the way the de development organizations and NGOs design interventions? So, in a number of the asset transfer uh, projects, I think um, uh, I'm thinking of one that was transferring cows, for example. Um, they have traditionally been transferring to head of household. Um, then some projects uh, in response to gender norms um, come in and, and transfer assets to women only. But then women may not necessarily be able to maintain control over that asset. So I think um, one of the first steps is finding out what the patterns are in a in a place of control over assets and the extent to which the project can increase the jointness um, as Agnes gave a good example but I think starting with that analysis um, of the local conditions and then how you can increase the jointness both in the control over the asset and um, in discussions about the labor time that's going to be required to participate in the project, uh, who gets, how the the uh, returns are controlled. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of space that opens up, and by considering jointness, you can sometimes avoid the opposition um, that you get by targeting women only. Okay. I guess from, from my own um, experience with development um, interventions, Ruth, I would um, concur with that last point, that we've seen cases where very simplistic targeting according to women, which was intended to break um, a, a pattern of uh, disadvantage of women in control of our assets, um, actually put women at risk because there was so much resentment um, about um, differential targeting to women only and breaking a um, a recognized norm in uh, so it, it was not an issue of jointness so much as recognizing the interdependence and the the um, 
behaviors within the household. And it was necessary to recognize that and design in recognition of it um, in order to um, maintain security and actually give advantages to the women in that setting. Now, we did have a, a question about um, age. And um, you've both all, both of you and Ruth and her comments have noted that women are not a, a homogeneous category. Um, there are all kinds of women. And the question relates to heterogeneity um, um, associated with age. Um, do we have an increasing body of um, evidence and analysis that shows how the decisions, um, the ownership, um, the work patterns, a number of things differ according to the age of women. And are we um, learning useful lessons about that that could be helpful in designing interventions that would suit women at different stages in the life cycle and suit households at, at different stages? So I think we're learning. Learning. Um, I think this is a fairly new area to be thinking explicitly about, although certainly smaller studies have, have looked at this particular issue. I think the answer is that it varies so much context to context as to what the, what the roles and responsibilities are for women at different ages. Um, and so I don't think, just as you can't really make generalizations about women across the world, you certainly wouldn't want to make generalizations about what happens to women at, at different stages of life, except to note that the different stages of life really matter. And in different contexts, different roles and responsibilities accrue to women at, at different moments. Um, there's starting to be work done really thinking about everybody's working on, on youth and to try to think about how young women and young men differ and the kinds of things that they differ um, on. I mean, one of the things that's certainly true is that for, for youth, as young men get older, they have more and more opportunities, whereas for young women, often many of the doors close as they get older and move into their, move from being children into to being youth. Um, and so we definitely need to think about those programs for youth differently for, for men and for women. Uh, can I add in one thing that we're finding from South Asia in particular is that it's not only age, but household structure. So a young woman who is unmarried and living in her parents' household is different than a young bride who is uh, of the same age but living in her in-laws household versus a woman who may be um, had, I mean, sort of in a nuclear household. And um, so that that really also matters a lot in, in South Asia, I would if I were to generalize, um, that's going to be different in in other places. But uh, the the gender literature for a long time, ha I mean, has since its beginning has set, talked about intersectionality. I think a lot of people who got on the bandwagon of of women's empowerment or 
please never ever say gender empowerment, but people who got on the bandwagon wanted to simplify. And so they, they did this, you know, as Agnes said, female-headed households compared to male-headed households or just women versus men. And even if you're doing by age, you do have to look at, at I mean, I think the intersectionality really does matter if you're doing programming. It's more than a buzzword. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, but I think that as we become more aware of these myths and how they might lead us astray, we're more sensitive to how myths might be operative in other areas, for example, with regard to age and not just mm -hmm. regard to gender. And so we start getting more careful about the data and we start, if we're collecting sex disaggregated data, we might as well do age disaggregated <laughs> data as well. And then we can do you know, much more interesting things with our work. So. I think that's another advantage of questioning um, some of these things that went unquestioned, perhaps, or at least they didn't have stakes put in their heart yet. <laughs> um, let's see, we had one really interesting question that came in, and then I want to probably close pretty soon with a couple of comments that have come in. The interesting question is, are there new myths that are starting to surface that we should be aware of um, that relate to gender? There's been so much increased attention to gender and agriculture, gender and development. Um, with that new attention, have there been new simplistic ideas that are taking on the sort of momentum of myths that we should um, take care of before they become zombies? <laughs> or at least examine before they become zombies? Well, I think there's there's one that we just need to be paying attention to, which is the one about the feminization of agriculture, which is one of my least favorite terms. Um, I don't know what it means for agriculture to be feminized. Um, but to think about, right, and, and there's such variation in terms of migration of who, who's, who's migrating out of rural areas. Um, often it's men migrating out of rural areas, leaving women behind. But in thinking about what that means, it's much more it's much more complicated than that just simply the men are gone and the women are left there by themselves to manage. Um, with the advent of everybody, even in rural areas, having cell phones, the men who are away are still involved much more than they would have been 20 years ago. Um, women may have other opportunities. There's places where women are migrating out of rural areas. And so just to pick up and say, oh, what's happening in, um, in some of these areas is that there's this feminization of agriculture process. I think we need to think much more carefully about what's actually going on in those places. So that's one that's taking on sort of mythical characteristics. I'm really glad to hear you mention that because I've found myself reacting negatively to the use of that word, but I haven't really asked myself, why am I reacting this way? So I, I, I really welcome your putting it in that context. Agnes, any thoughts on your side? Um, so there's a myth, I'm not sure it's a new myth, it's been around, which is that um, women are always more altruistic and always look out for other women and girls. And I think it's a myth because in some contexts, especially in places where sons are responsible for old age support, you may see women who become more empowered investing in their sons rather than their daughters because they see think that their sons are going to pay a better investment in the long run. So um, we've seen this a lot in 
in our work in South Asia and and so it, it just I think emphasized that we have to look at the context in which these ideas are being um, replicated or what or you know we have to see whether it's true generally or not before it becomes a myth. Well I think it's also very it, it's useful to be reminded that not all empowered women in the course of history have been forces for good. <laughs> That's true. Although <laughs> well, we consider ourselves um, historically, it's not correct. The evidence is argues for caution. Um, so very good. That, that's very helpful. We had two comments that came in that I really appreciate. Um, one was an example of where um, myths might have led us astray in the design of development programs. And it was specifically the myth that women are more adept at managing natural resources or perhaps more likely to do so. And it was an example of a development program that was implemented in an African country that was specifically designed around the free labor of women. To get this natural resource management job done on the assumption that they liked it, they wanted to do it, they were good at it. Why shouldn't they do it for free? And I thought that was a really interesting uh -huh. example. So thank you for sending that in. Ruth, do you want to comment on that in any way? I I think that's a great example of this notion that uh yeah, that of women being more altruistic or, you know, the um and underestimating their their time requirements. Um, so yeah, that's excellent example. Thanks for that. Okay. And we also have um, a, a new myth which has been suggested by a listener who says that the myth is that women's empowerment, now that we can measure it since we have new instruments for doing that, women's empowerment is necessarily positively correlated with attainment of all of the SDGs. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, maybe we want to start using some of our evidence in uh, examining that one. Uh, we had a wonderful comment from a PhD student in Cameroon um, in an agricultural economics program and she thanks you so much for this excellent presentation. She says it's really opened her eyes to a, a number of issues that she had accepted without questioning with regard to you know, gender and development. And so she just sends in thanks for um, a, a really uh, interesting discussion. So I want to pass that on to you. And I want to thank our listener who sent that in. I, I really appreciate that. Um, we've come to the end of our time. Um, we have a number of other questions. And the, the we, we have an option to go on for a few more minutes. Or if people have to leave, we could um, we could thank you for for attending and, and agree that you're going to sign off. Would um, Ruth and Cheryl and Agnes, would you be willing to stay for just a few more minutes for a few more topics that came in? Sure, sure. sure. Okay, well then let's go to um, uh, the issue about um, jointness. Let's see. If we don't, if we recognize jointness in um, decision making within the household, if we don't design projects specifically to enhance women's empowerment, how do we then achieve parity? Do we simply accept jointness um, and the power relations within the household um, as they exist, or do we do some kind of intervention that allows us to strategize around changing that uh, those power relations within the household? 
recognizing that they're not we're not going to lose the jointness and maybe the jointness is a, a force for, for good. So can I answer that? I sort of have a gut reaction to that question. Okay, please. So my gut reaction to the question is that jointness does not mean inequality. That doesn't necessarily mean inequality. Um, the, I think we like to take, um, or I like, I, I don't want to speak for Cheryl or, or Ruth. <laughs> I, like to take, I, I like to take a positive spin on jointness. It can be negative too, but my positive spin on jointness is that both men and women are contributing to something. Can we can we make it so that their con contributions are both recognized and thereby make gender relations more equal? So in a case, for example, where um, women's contribution is not recognized, um, recognizing that contribution more may actually improve relationships within the household. And that's actually one of the exercises being done, for example, by HKI in their Nurturing Connections curriculum, where they sort of have conversations among family members and basically teach them to see what each other is doing. Like, oh, I didn't realize my, doing, my wife was doing all of that, you know. And Cheryl, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, I mean, we need to go for both our data collection and for thinking about projects, we need to go beyond just saying, oh, we do it jointly. Um, or oh, we own something jointly, and to, and to understand what that means in that particular context. It it may not. It's certainly the case that joint doesn't necessarily mean equal, um, but it also may be the case that things are changing, and we need to be able to monitor what that what that means. One of our colleagues was doing did some work in I think in Colombia where they had collected a lot of data that talked about people doing things jointly and when somebody went back and did some much more qualitative work what the women were saying is that things had changed and now it was joint they were they were very enthusiastic about this change to it being more joint and what had changed is that things had gone from having men making all of the decisions mm -hmm. without telling their wives at all that now they would actually tell their wives what they were going to do before they did it Right. And so I'm not sure I would if you if I just went in that I would say I'm not sure I would think of that as joint. Right. But the women thought that this was a much better outcome. And it it opens the doors for the women to be able to say, oh, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Maybe we could do it this other way that they had mm -hmm. never had before. Right. So I think you understanding all the dynamics for a project of what's going on and how things are changing and what direction they're moving in is really important because these women felt very empowered by the fact that their husbands were now at least telling them what they were going to do before they did it even if me as an outsider might not think of that as being joint so mm -hmm. honey i'm going to sell the cow right <laughs> rather than honey i sold the cow right i mean at least if it's honey, I'm going to sell the cow, then she might be able to say, oh, well, you know, I, our neighbors just sold a cow and I heard they got this amount for it. Or if you, you know, or then great, then let's make sure we save some of the money to spend on education or that she's got some opening for it and some possibilities that she'll have more say in the future. See, okay, I, I, I think that th this work opens up, um, you know, a number of areas we, and we've already discussed them. Um, you know, how we uh, think about designing our research, what kind of new 
new kind of data that we need in order to um, you know, have the possibility of doing new and interesting research, um, questioning the myths, both the ex existing ones and the new ones that might be coming, coming at us. Um, I think it also raises questions um, which will be a very fruitful area of research in the targeting, both mm -hmm. of, of the studies that we do, how we ask questions, who's targeted in surveys, um, but particularly in development interventions. How do we think about targeting the uh, participation in interventions, um, what what indicators do we use? I, I look at a lot of um, results frameworks for development projects that have an indicator and then a sub-indicator of which, you know, X percent, yeah. 50 percent will be women. Um, you know, I think that um, this research that you're doing and which I um, assume that you'll be continuing in a number of different forms um, will lead us to recognize more of the complexity within the household. You know, we, you've already um, recognized that for a number of years in your work, but to um, think about how to you know, structure targeting in these projects, um, the importance of qualitative dimensions of analysis, which help you get at what's going on in the household, sometimes in ways that you can't with quantitative analysis. And so the, the mix of qualitative and quantitative research techniques, um, new approaches to targeting within development interventions, um, and you know, new ways of questioning what we uh, perhaps have always thought was um, grounded in fact, but may not be, and that's always useful for us as researchers. So with that, I want to thank all three of you, um, Cheryl, Agnes, and Ruth, for joining us for your excellent um, presentation, but more fundamentally for the work that was behind it. And I want to thank the many people who tuned in. We still have 78 people apparently with us. Um, and we had more than that um, earlier in, in the webinar. And we will be putting this um, on our website for those who want to review it again or for friends and colleagues who were not able to join us. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to them for supporting thank our you. work. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, yes. Thanks. Goodbye.